And suddenly, though, I heard him saying, I love my little girls more than anything, and I said to myself, oh, no, don't, you can't, don't say that. But I had underestimated him. He went on, I would rather see my little girls die now, still believing in God, than have them grow up under communism and one day die no longer believing in God. Dead. Um, special episode tonight, at least special to us. We had a good time recording it, a little bit long, about an hour and a half interview, but had a good time learning and discussing uh, Harry Bridges with retired pro- history professor Robert Cherney. Uh, I think we got some good questions in with him, and honestly, it was a great interview. Um, we hope to have Professor Cherney, Robert, Bob back. Um, he's got another book coming out in the future. Thursday was your life If the pigs killed it What was her bridge Just grabbed the mic The city shut down July 6th The workers are rich There's a general strike The media claimed The boys were taking over And so it was true Three uncompromising shots Made a real man And for it all Canada's a lot and a winner's a broken Woman, oh, Canada's a lot and a winner's a broken Today we have Dr. Robert Cherney, a historian who has written books on the populist movement in Nebraska on William Jennings Bryan. You've uh, written about the muralist, uh, progressive muralist. Um, and recently you've had a book, Harry Bridges, uh, a biography. And uh, yeah, we're very excited to talk with you about uh, a major labor leader. So yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. All right. So, so go yeah, go ahead. Got it. Nope. Go for it. <laughs> well, um, we thought we'd start with uh, Harry Bridges' background um, from Australia to uh, San Francisco and the United States, and just go from there and his time with the IWW. Okay. Well, um, it, it's all a very long story, uh, but Bridges was born in Australia in 1901 in a suburb of Melbourne, uh, a working class suburb, although his family was not working class. His father was a real estate developer. Um, and he attended Catholic school for the most part, served as an altar boy for a while. Uh, his father wanted him to go into the real estate business, but uh, Bridges had other ideas. Uh, his favorite uncle uh, was named Henry Renton Bridges. He was an activist in the Australian Workers Union, which was a union for farm workers. And he was also an activist for the Australian Labor Party, which was the first social democratic party to 
uh, win uh, a, a majority and and uh, create a government. Um, so Bridges actually grew up in a household where there were discussions of unions and of labor politics more generally. Uh, he had a third, uh, second uncle, the third brother in that family, who was also an activist in the Australian Labor Party. Uh, Bridges himself had been christened Alfred Renton Bridges, which was his father's name, Alfred. Uh, but as a teenager, he decided not only that he didn't want to sell real estate, but he also really wanted to uh, do something a lot more adventurous. He started calling himself Harry uh, in emulation of his favorite uncle, whose nickname was Harry. And he decided he wanted to go to sea. He loved reading. He had been reading sea stories. He had written, read every sea story he could imagine. He used to hang around the docks in Melbourne, talk to the, uh, the workers aboard the ships. And his father finally very reluctantly agreed to let him do it uh, and made a deal with one of his uh, poker playing pals that, uh, uh, he, that Harry would go to sea on, on this man's catch and that he'd be given all the worst jobs imaginable as a way of curing him of his uh, desire to go to sea. But Harry loved it. And from that point on, uh, he continued to sail and, and under sail, under canvas, uh, for, for some time between Melbourne and Tasmania, and then later between Melbourne and New Zealand. And at one point, when he was in uh, New Zealand, he had a chance to get a ship to come to San Francisco. And he jumped at the chance because he had read all of Jack London's novels and he wanted to see the places that Jack London had written about. Um, he got to San Francisco, came ashore, did all of his paperwork to make it all legal. Uh, so that he could work from the port of San Francisco. Um, he joined the Sailors Union of the Pacific, uh, and he began shipping out of San Francisco. Uh, on one of his voyages, he ended up in New Orleans uh, at the time of the big 1921 strike by the International Seamen's Union. Uh, so he was he was stuck there in New Orleans. He joined the picket lines, of course. Uh, and at one point, he was recruited into the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. Uh, and he hung out with, with several other Wobblies during that strike. Uh, and... Among, I, I think the two most important lessons that he took away from his time with the Wobblies was, first of all, that class trumps race. Having grown up in Australia, he grew up with the white Australia policy. Uh, the Australian Labor Party was a very racist party. It was Australia for whites only. And the white Australia policy was certainly uh, the most common uh, uh, policy 
uh, in Australia at that time regarding immigration and race more generally. Uh, so Bridges had grown up in a household uh, where it was assumed that people of color were inferior. But in, Aust in, in New Orleans, uh, in association with the Wobblies, uh, he learned that very important lesson that all workers uh, were members of the same class and that there should be class solidarity without any consideration to race or religion uh, or any other such uh, form of discrimination. Um, the other important lesson that he learned from the Wobblies was organizing at the point of production, um, that, that workers really needed to organize other workers uh, and that they that if they were sufficiently organized, sufficiently powerful, that they can uh, stop production and thereby shut down a company. Um, he continued uh, sailing after that strike, but uh, soon afterwards, he instead decided to, as they say, go on the beach, which is to say, uh, stop sailing, and uh, and he instead took work as a longshoreman. On one of his voyages, he had met a woman up in Oregon, and uh, they developed a relationship. She came to San Francisco. They lived together in San Francisco, and he began working on the docks. Um, he spent about 10 years there, with uh, learning learning the skills of a longshoreman, to be sure. He knew a good deal of those because he'd been a sailor. Uh, and as a sailor on a small ship going to Tasmania, uh, the sailors of the, of the ships had often done longshoring themselves because there were no longshoremen in some of those ports. So he knew the basics. But he had to learn a lot more about the really large ships, the steamships, where he was uh, loading and unloading cargo in San Francisco. He learned a lot as well about the dangers of the job. Uh, Longshoring was, was uh, a potentially very dangerous job, according to uh, the statistics of the day. It was the second most dangerous occupation in the U.S., next only to mining. Um, it was a, a job that had no security. Hiring was by the day or by the job. If you wanted to work on the longshore in San Francisco, you would go down to the ferry building at 7 a.m. and wait to see if you were picked to work that day. The way it worked was that longshoremen worked in gangs and there was a gang boss who supervised each gang. A gang could be anywhere from a dozen to 18 or more men, depending upon what kind of cargo was being loaded or unloaded. Um, the gang bosses 
worked under the supervision of a walking boss. Each gang boss was responsible for one hold of a ship. You know, the, in these sorts of ships, there would be, depending on the size of the ship, there might be four different holds uh, where cargo was either lowered down into the hold or pulled up from the hold. Each gang worked one hold. The gang boss was responsible for that hold. The walking boss was responsible for the entire ship. And the way that the shape up, the way in which longshoremen got jobs, the way the shape up worked is that first the gang bosses shaped up and they were told where, which pier to go to, which ship they were going to be working. The gang bosses would then go to where the longshoremen were shaping up and, and meet their regular gang. Uh, if there was a group of men that usually worked together under that particular gang boss. And if there weren't enough of them, then they'd add some more people who were there looking for work, but who weren't part of a regular gang. Uh, Bridges fairly early was uh, made a reputation as a good solid worker. And so he often was part of a steady gang, but not always. But there's no job security here. A longshoreman was hired by the day or by the job. Sometimes you might uh, come back the next day and work the same ship. It might continue that way. But there's no job security. There's no job benefits. You're paid simply by the job. Um, and there was no real union. There was an organization that called itself a union but it had been created in 1919 as a result of a failed strike by the previous union. Uh, and a group of gang bosses and walking bosses had formed an organization that called itself a union and signed a contract with the waterfront employers. It was called Blue Book because that was the color of, his, of its dues book. And probably the most important thing that the union did was to collect dues. Uh, most longshoremen considered it to be really a racket rather than any kind of a real union because it didn't really protect its members. It did negotiate contracts periodically. Uh, the wages that they negotiated were not terribly low, but they weren't uh, the best by any means. If you uh, translate their wages to uh, what uh, to current buying power, uh, it was just about minimum wage or, or maybe a bit less. Um, Bridges had a few run-ins with the Blue Book business agents. He tried to uh, avoid paying dues. But if you didn't pay dues and the business agent caught you, you'd lose your job for the day. So there were times when uh, he was blacklisted. He, he joined one effort to form a real union. Uh, and they, the, the men who did that marched in the Labor Day parade and the Blue Book business agents were all there taking down the names of everyone who was marching and they all got blacklisted. Um, so that this was is, the kind of life that he was living. Yeah. 
in the 1920s. This is this is also why the shakedown, or not the shakedown, the uh, what was it? What was the phrase shape you used up. for the hiring? Shape up. Shape, shape up. Shape up. Shape up. Yeah, like after the 1934 strike, the hiring process is like totally changed, which is so like incredible about this period. Um, how radically the hiring practices, which were also segregated, I understand from your book that um, white and black gangs were hired. And there's also a inner ethnic racial hierarchy among Irish, uh, Eastern European, et cetera, among the gangs. And also how arbitrary it was. You could try to bribe different um, gang bosses to try to hire you and whatnot. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. It it, it was an an incredibly arbitrary system uh, in that regard. It was a casual labor market in every sense of the word. But there there is at least one aspect of it that was somewhat favorable. If a longshoreman didn't go to want want to go to work on Wednesday, he didn't have to go to work on Wednesday. And he could show up on Thursday and probably get his job back in his steady gang, assuming that someone else hadn't taken his place or in another gang. So that's about the only advantage to this casual labor market. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's an advantage that continued after they got rid of the shape up. And we can talk about that later. Yeah, I think it, it is interesting, you know, the way these it's almost like what we called, you know, quote unquote, day labor now is the way it was sort of, you know, at will employment. And I, I do think that it's a strange like, consideration to keep it. But it's, yeah, it is very lucky to set your own schedule like this, because this is a freedom most people don't have. And I think that I think we should lead into sort of, you know, the International Longshoremen's Union, uh, the ILWU. Uh, obviously, this is where Bridges starts, but how does he kind of I guess suppose let's get to 30, walking us in a third, the 1934 strike and the Albion Hall group, you know, what, how does Bridges start to branch out and move away from the ILWU and what happens in 34? Okay, sure. Um, uh, in 1929, the stock market crashed, setting off the Great Depression. Uh, and things got worse on, on the longshore. Uh, there were fewer ships coming to port. There were more unemployed men who would come to the waterfront looking for work. Uh, work became even less reliable than what it had been before. By the early 1930s, there were two groups on the waterfront trying to organize longshoremen against the Blue Book. Uh, one of them was the Marine Workers International Union, which was a Communist Party organization. And the other was a group of men who had tried to organize a local of the International Longshoremen's Association uh, earlier in the 1920s, but, but had failed in that effort. Um, Bridges had some contacts with the local Communist Party. Uh, uh, it's his actual status with that organization has never been very clear. And anyone who really knows what it was took those things to the grave with them. 
but he certainly had contacts with the local head of the party, Sam Darcy. What kind of contacts he had with the Marine Workers International Union uh, is a whole different uh, question because um, there's no absolute record of it. And because that organization in San Francisco was never very significant on the waterfront. Uh, they, Darcy constantly complained to headquarters in New York that the local organizers for the MWIU were not competent. And in fact, they don't seem to have been at all successful in putting together any kind of an organization. You know, at, at one point in about hmm, 1932 or so, uh, they were criticized because they hadn't even brought in enough dues money to cover the cost of postage that they were using. They um, sound like Marxists, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> um, but a group of, of, of people did begin organizing for the International Longshoremen's Association uh, in, in 1932. Uh, and eventually they got a charter from the ILA as local 3879. Uh, the charter came in, in mid 1933. Uh, and Bridges joined uh, uh, as, as soon as they began signing up members. Now, let me tell you a little bit about why it has that local number 38-79. The Pacific Coast was an autonomous district within the ILA. Uh, and this went back to the early years of the 20th century when there'd been a dispute between the Pacific Coast locals and the, the International, which was headquartered on the East Coast. Uh, and as a consequence of that dispute, the West Coast ports had uh, established their own autonomous district, a Pacific Coast district. So all of the Pacific Coast ports had the prefix 38, and then they had separate local numbers that, that was attached to that. Uh, but all of those locals, except one, had collapsed in the 1920s. Only in Tacoma had, any, had they been managed to hold on to their union. And in all the other Pacific Coast ports, the ILA uh, had really fallen apart in the 1920s, which, you know, is a period of incredible uh, anti-union uh, uh, organizing on the part of employers. So in, the, uh, in 1933, late 32 and into 33, the ILA was reorganizing all up and down the Pacific coast. So it wasn't just San Francisco where they were uh, uh, reorganizing or revitalizing previous organizations. The fact that Tacoma was the only local that had really held together during the 20s meant that by default, the leadership of the Pacific Coast District pretty much came from Tacoma. Um, so Bridges joined in 1933. He and a group of other militants uh, formed a caucus they met at a uh, at a, a what what Henry Schmidt, one of the that group, later described as a beer hall that was run by a working man's organization, and it was uh, part of the 
uh, of a working of a German working men's educational association. It was on Albion Street, so they called themselves the Albion Hall uh, Group, and they met periodically. Um, every other week or so. It was a very loosely organized group. Um, the FBI got a really good list of all the members at one point, uh, and there were about 18 or so of them. Uh, Bridges and Schmidt were among the leaders, but uh, and there were a few members of the group who were Communist Party members, but the majority were not. There were some uh, anti-communists in the group as well. Uh, they met every couple of weeks. What they had in common, as I said, is that they were militants. They wanted to uh, take militant action in order to, uh, most of all, get rid of the shape up, as well as accomplish a number of other important changes. Um, they managed to elect three of their group to the local executive board when the new local held its first elections. And that gave them a real base within the leadership. The president of the local was Lee Holman, who had gone, who had been involved with efforts to organize all through the 20s. But he was, in many ways, uh, uh, very conservative in what he wanted to do. And it, it really became clear as time went on that what Holman seemed to want was, was an organization rather like the Blue Book, <laughs> in which he would be getting the benefit of the dues rather than those other guys. Um, Nonetheless, Bridges and his associates were able to make some real progress uh, in terms of changing things within that local from what the old ILA in San Francisco had been. The old ILA had been a union for whites only. Um, that was a union that had uh, fallen apart in 1919. And what Bridges and his group did uh, as some of their very first actions on the local executive board was to insist that there be a black organizer hired and that there be no discrimination on the basis of race or religion or politics. They didn't mention gender at the time because there were only males working on the waterfront and I think it was inconceivable to any of them that women would ever work on a waterfront. Uh, but they, they specified no discrimination on race, ethnicity, religion, politics, or any other such possible base for discrimination. Um, and, and they worked to try to recruit the small number of black uh, longshore workers or longshore workers who were in other ways discriminated against. Latinos were discriminated against. American Indians were discriminated against. There were not many of them. Uh, there were only a couple of so-called black gangs. And the so-called black gangs were anyone who wasn't white. And as you mentioned, there was a larger sort of ethnic hierarchy among the gangs. 
Bridges later said that he thought that the Scandinavian gangs were the ones that were pretty much at the top of this hierarchy, then the Irish gangs, maybe Irish and German both, and then working all their way down to the to the black gang, which was the uh, least uh, uh, prominent on the on the hierarchy. Um, Bridges for a while was able to uh, work with a steady gang headed by a, a Scandinavian. So he'd managed uh, over the years to uh, work into a pretty solid uh, position on the waterfront. So all this union organizing by 1933 is beginning to focus on uh, the, the new legislation that was passed early in 1933 uh, in the administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt in an effort uh, to um, bring about economic recovery, to provide relief to the unemployed in the interim, and to bring about some long-term economic reforms uh, in order to prevent any future depression. And for the first of these, to bring about recovery uh, Congress passed the uh, National Industrial Recovery Act. <clears throat> and part of that act set up the National Recovery Administration, which uh, sought to plan recovery by encouraging each industry to develop a code of, of fair competition within that industry. Uh, as a way to avoid companies trying to cut prices to the point where they were driving each other out of business. That was part of it. Uh, but one part of NRA specified that each of these codes had to guarantee workers the right to engage in collective bargaining with a union of their own choosing. The first time that the federal government had had uh, recognized unions in this way in peacetime. Uh, and so this new union on the waterfront began uh, trying to figure out what they wanted to put in the code. They There was a meeting of the entire Pacific Coast District, and they developed a series of demands for the code. Uh, it, it had to do with wages, an increase in wages. It had to do with hours. They specified they wanted a six-hour day and a 30-hour week. And if that seems like pie in the sky, uh, it probably was, but it was part of a larger movement across the country to really share the work. That since there was less work uh, to be had by specifying a six-hour day, uh, and a 30-hour week, this opens up more jobs. That, that was the, the thinking behind uh, asking for a six-hour day. Uh, but most importantly of all, they wanted to end the shape-up. And what they proposed as the alternative to the shape-up was, first of all, hiring priority for union members. Union members would, would be dispatched to jobs first, uh, and if there weren't enough union members to fill all the jobs, only then would others be be allowed to to work. So high, th th this was also called a closed shop. You had to be a union member. 
uh, to get this kind of priority. And but also that the whole hiring operation be done through a union hiring hall, that it was the union that would be responsible for dispatching men to the jobs on the waterfront. Uh, the waterfront employers, of course, had no interest whatever <laughs> in that part of the package. Uh, and, and the negotiations over an NRA code finally just broke down. And at that point, the Pacific Coast ILA, the ILA Pacific Coast District, uh, wanted to negotiate a contract directly. But they immediately ran into uh, roadblocks. Most obviously that the employers said, we don't have a coastwide organization. You're going to have to negotiate port by port. Uh, now, that was, again, one of the cons uh, considerations that the Pacific Coast District had specified. They wanted a single coastwise contract with the same wages, hours, and working conditions in every port on the Pacific Coast. The reason for that, I think, is pretty obvious, that if there were different wage levels in different ports, employers could play them off against each other and send the goods to the cheapest port, which would drive down wages elsewhere. So they wanted a single contract with the same conditions, the same wages, the same hours in every port. That was the first big sticking point because um, there were four major employers groups, one in Puget Sound, one for the Columbia River ports around Portland, one in the San Francisco Bay Area, and one in Southern California. And those those uh, employer associations said, no, we, we can't negotiate. We won't negotiate we, uh, with you. Now, in fact, the basic companies that formed these associations operated in, uh, in several of those ports, if not all of them. The steamship companies operated in all of them. Some of the stevedoring companies operated in more than one. Um, and they clearly had contacts with each other, these, these associations in the different ports. So this was just um, a strategy, obviously, a sort of divide and conquer strategy to keep the, the union divided uh, rather than allowing for negotiations with uh, just uh, one group of employers and, and one group of workers. So negotiations stalled, negotiations stalled. Uh, the uh, federal government uh, intervened early in 1934. Uh, they sent out an assistant secretary of labor, Edward McGrady, to see if he could bring about some kind of a, of a settlement. Uh, the secretary of labor at the time was Frances Perkins, and she was very sympathetic to organized labor as was McGrady. McGrady had been a union officer before he became Assistant Secretary of Labor. Um, and Roosevelt, at, at, early on, appointed a mediation board uh, to try to find a solution. And this mediation board 
uh, pressed the employers to to negotiate as a group. The Los Angeles ones just absolutely refused. And so they tried negotiating just with the Port of San Francisco, uh, but that fell apart because the negotiators for the longshoremen in San Francisco insisted that they have one wage level for all of the ports. And of course, that was exactly why the employer associations didn't want to do it. Um, and so things were headed toward a strike. Uh, they'd set a strike date in March, but at the last minute, there was an intervention again from the White House to set up a National Longshoremen's Board uh, for mediation and arbitration. Uh, a three-person board, three San Francisco, there are two San Franciscans plus McGrady representing the the uh, national, uh, the federal administration. The chairman of the board was to be the local archbishop, Edward Hanna. And the third member was a local attorney who uh, was uh, best known for his philanthropy. Uh, so it, 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 Bridges was rather critical of this board at the outset because Hanna had been used by employers in the early 20s uh, in efforts to uh, control the construction industry. And Hannah had eventually withdrawn from any participation in those efforts when he realized he was being used. But still, uh, Bridges the, looked rather askance at having Hannah involved because of that earlier experience. The longshoremen didn't want to arbitrate. The companies didn't want to arbitrate. In San Francisco, by the middle of June, the national president of the ILA showed up, Edward uh, Joseph Ryan, and said he was going to bring about a settlement. Um, and he met with the mayor, some leading members of the Teamsters Union, the Industrial Association, which was the major anti-union organization in the city, the Chamber of Commerce, and a couple of mem local members of the Longshoremen's Union. And this group, under the guidance of Mayor Angelo Rossi, did come up with an agreement. And all the newspapers announced that the strike was over. Uh, well, all but one. There were four daily newspapers at the time. And three of the, of the four announced the strike was over. The fourth one announced that an agreement had been signed, but whether it would be approved would depend upon a vote of the members. Joseph Ryan had assured the employers that that wouldn't be necessary. He said, I have the authority to make uh, any, any settlement stick. Um, but he was wrong <laughs> because uh, the men rejected his settlement. It did not provide for a union hiring hall. It did not provide for coastwise uh, uh, setting of wages and working conditions. Uh, it was only slightly different than what they had already. Uh, and it was rejected uh, all up and down the coast. Uh, 
And so things then began moving toward a strike on both sides. Uh, the, uh, the Industrial Association of San Francisco took over the employer side of the strike. They began, they set up a non-union trucking firm. They hired non-union drivers. There were already strike breakers working on all the docks, unloading ships. They got a non-union warehouse and they specified that we're going to open the port without the union. We're going to, I mean, they didn't say it in so many words, but we're, they said, we're going to break the union by opening the port with non-union labor. Um, they said, we're going to do this July 3rd. Uh, they managed to send out a few trucks on the afternoon of July 3rd from uh, Pier 38 to a warehouse that's just across the street from the ballpark today. Uh, there were massive crowds of strikers and strike supporters trying to block the movement of the trucks from Pier 38 to the warehouse, but they were unsuccessful. The police set up a barricade of police cars to keep them away from the route that the trucks were following. And there was a massive police presence, uh, more than 500 police officers uh, armed with, um, my cat is making noises here, mm -hmm. trying to get my attention. Stop that. You know how well that works with cats. Uh, yeah, I got ones to do it too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Does that noise bothersome? Nope. No, I'm not picking it up. You're good. Thank you. All right. Good. Um, so that was July 3rd. July 4th, of course, was a holiday in which both sides sent, spent uh, the time preparing. July 5th uh, was chaos. Uh, once again, the Industrial Association started moving goods off Pier 38. Uh, there were strikers and strike supporters uh, who tried to prevent that in whatever way they could, throwing rocks, throwing bricks. Uh, the police responded with clubs and tear gas and live ammunition, uh, both from revolvers and from riot guns. Uh, a riot gun is a short-barreled shotgun. It, with a short barrel, this shot scatters. Right, only made so for one purpose. It's only only for one purpose, and it was they were loaded with buckshot that day, not with birdshot, uh, because buckshot is deadly. Uh, after some initial confrontations in the morning the police began trying to move all of the strikers and strike supporters away, in, entirely away from the South waterfront uh, and trying to herd them uh, up toward the union headquarters and, and kind of block them in with a couple in, into a couple of, of square blocks of space. Uh, and in the intersection nearest the union hall, uh, the intersection of Stewart and Mission Streets, there were 100 or 200 of these strikers. A police car, an unmarked police car, pulled into the middle of that intersection. A cop got out, a plainclothesman, uh, armed with guns in both hands. 
and uh, the accounts vary, but everyone agrees, all the witnesses agree that he said something like, well, if you sons of bitches run, want some of this, you're, you're, you're asking for it. Uh, and there were perhaps some shouts back at him. Perhaps someone called him names. Uh, that's what some of the witnesses suggest. And he started firing into the crowd. Uh, and then walked away. Uh, two men collapsed immediately. One of them died within hours. The other one actually survived. But later in the day, they found another man dead from buckshot. So two dead. One of them was a striking longshoreman. The other one was a member of the Cooks Union who had been volunteering in the in the kitchen in the the, the, the kitchen uh, for the strikers. Um, more than a hundred were injured. Not all of them were strikers or strike supporters. There were uh, a half dozen or more just bystanders, people on streetcars, people walking down the street, who who were shot as well, or injured by being shot. Um, the union, uh, well, the union sent a delegation to the mayor's office to protest this kind of police violence. And the mayor essentially told them that you've been warned. You've been warned that unless you go back to work, there's going to be bloodshed. Uh, which suggests that all of this police violence had the highest level of authorization. Um, they sent uh, the strikers sent off a telegram of protest to President Roosevelt. Uh, the newspaper, one of the newspapers, uh, evening newspaper, called it Bloody Thursday, and that name has stuck ever since for July fifth. July 5th in the ports all up and down the Pacific coast is, is still Bloody Thursday. It's a contractual holiday for the, the Longshore Union in which they uh, commemorate those who died in the 1934 strike because two in San Francisco and a total of four others in other ports, a total of six who, who were killed by the police, uh, in the in that strike, um, as of by then, the employers had agreed to arbitration. The union had not yet agreed. By then, there were also a number of other unions striking. All of the seagoing unions had also joined the strike with issues of their own. And the longshoremen had said to the employers, you have to negotiate with them as well. This is not just our strike anymore. This is also their strike. And that we won't go back to work until they also have a settlement. So now there's pressures on the steamship companies to agree to arbitrate, pressures on the seagoing unions to arbitrate, pressures on the longshoremen to arbitrate. While this was going on, 
the union was also organizing a funeral for the two men who were killed. Uh, and it was, by all accounts, the most dramatic such occasion that the city has ever seen. There was a ceremony in the Union Hall on Stewart Street, just south of Mission, which was carried to loudspeakers to thousands of people outside. The bodies in the cast in caskets were then carried down the steps from the Union Hall and placed on flatbed trucks. Uh, that of Howard Sperry had an American flag because he was a veteran of World War I. That of Nicholas Kondorakis uh, had flowers. Uh, he had, was an immigrant from Greece, and he was a member of the Communist Party. So two flatbed trucks carrying the caskets, two more trucks just with the flowers that people had sent for the funeral, a truck carrying members of the musicians' union playing a funeral dirge. And this procession moved up uh, to Market Street and went down Market Street. That's the main street in San Francisco, you know, a very broad thoroughfare that stretches from the ferry building way uh, into the, the west. Following the flatbed trucks were the marchers of the strikers, of the striking unions, followed by other unions in the city. Thousands upon thousands marching in, in memory of the two men who were killed. Uh, many more on the sidewalks watching and sometimes joining in the march at the end of the march to show their support. Um, the numbers who were marching uh, vary widely, depending on who was make, making the estimates, but estimates somewhere between 15,000 and 45,000 marching in, in memory of those two men who had died by police bullets. That dramatic demonstration of union solidarity made it inevitable that there would be a general strike. There had been talk of a general strike for weeks before, but the police violence, oh, and I should add, by the end of the day on July 5th, the governor sent in the National Guard and the National Guard took up positions all up and down the waterfront, set up machine gun nests, had tanks patrolling the waterfront, snipers on top of the piers. So the waterfront and the area immediately inland from the waterfront had become highly militarized in order to protect the strike breakers. So the drama of the funeral together with the National Guard's protection of the strike breakers really made a, a general strike uh, inevitable. And at this point, the whole momentum of it shifted to the leadership of the San Francisco Labor Council. And the key figure there was George Kidwell, who was an, uh, a former socialist turned New Deal Democrat, 
an officer of the Bakery Wagon Drivers Union, a teamster. Uh, and Kidwell uh, was uh, often described as the brains of the Labor Council. Kidwell's plan was to shift decision-making as much as possible to the Labor Council. And he, he oversaw the creation of a general strike committee, uh, which, which oversaw the whole four-day-long general strike. Kidwell said what we need to do is to get the longshoremen to agree to arbitrate, get the employers to agree to arbitrate, uh, and that will that that will be the end of the strike. Uh, he also said, when you have a general strike, the most important thing to do is to shut it down quickly. And it was shut down quickly. It was shut down after four days. Uh, the general strike committee at, uh, early on in those four days uh, passed a resolution saying that all of the striking waterfront unions, the longshoremen, the various seagoing unions, should agree to arbitration. Um, and they couldn't force them to do it, but they put the power of the Labor Council of the city's organized labor behind that resolution. They really did shut down the city. They shut down uh, the, the privately owned streetcars, they shut down the taxis, the barber shops, the bars, the movie theaters, the restaurants, everything that was unionized shut down. And in this incredible demonstration of labor solidarity, uh, I think it's, it's the most striking such demonstration uh, in US history for the 20th century. Uh, there isn't another general strike uh, of anything quite like it uh, any time in U.S. history for the 20th century. Um, yeah. yeah, I think I like this watershed moment because I mean I'm from Michigan, so like we have the Battle of the Overpass and stuff like that. It's always these watershed moments are always really interesting when things just kind of break and like. In Michigan, it's the unionization of Ford. You know, it's Ford Motor Company's finally, you're in the biggest one, we got them. And I think here, the fact is that so much revolves around the docks is so interesting that the entire city, it's like a, a being around a factory, their revenue revolves around this, they deal with these people every day. And it's amazing to me how many positions are actually unionized at this time. And even non-union positions, you know, the truckers who aren't unionized start jumping in fairly early in the general strike. And I, yeah, I think we don't see anything like it. So, I mean... Obviously, at some point, you know, the breakdown comes up. Um, if you want to tell us how they broke up the strike and then out of the aftermath, the sort of the formation of uh, the CIO comes about. Yeah, well, we can get to that. Uh, I, I think I need to wrap Don't up rush you. what happened. Rush you. <laughs> uh, you know, the the San Francisco uh, local of the longshoremen, the other longshoremen locals, they did vote to arbitrate at that point. They, the, But it was by a vote of the members. They agreed to, to arbitrate. Uh, they felt in a sense that they had no choice. But once the employers agreed to arbitrate, they would look like they were, you know, the the ones who were preventing a settlement. Um, the seagoing unions uh, agreed to arbitrate. Uh, at, at a key point, John Francis Nyland, who was general consul to the Hearst uh, Empire, 
and a really powerful figure within the San Francisco civic establishment, took a bunch of these steamship oper- company uh, executives, the newspaper executives, the industrial association executives down to his estate, down the peninsula, served them only cold water, no alcohol, and really raked them over the coals and said, you have got to agree to arbitrate. That's the only way this is going to end. You know, your treatment of labor on the waterfront is what got the city into this in the first place. And you've got to to, to step up and, and agree to end it. And apparently he also said, and if you don't agree to arbitrate, the newspapers tomorrow are going to announce that you did agree and let you deny it. Um, and they did. <laughs> so um, they went back to work at the end of July um, and pending the outcome of the arbitration. And the arbitration initially was said to be a defeat for the unions, but it turned out not to be. They got the six-hour day and the 30-hour week. They got an increase in pay, not quite as much as they wanted. They got an agreement that covered the entire coast with the same wages and working conditions in every port, which is what they'd asked for. They didn't get a union hiring hall. They got a hiring hall which was supposed to be paid for half and half, half by the union, half by the employers. But the key figure in this was the dispatcher. And what they got was a union dispatcher. And so in in the Longshore Union today, up and down the coast, jobs are dispatched in a hiring hall. The employers have to help pay for the cost of the hall. But it's the dispatching is done by an elected officer of the union. The union elects the dispatcher and they dispatch union members first. And if there are more positions to be filled, then they only then do they go to, to uh, others. So that has persisted to the present. And it is the hiring hall, which has always been seen as as the real center of the union, the, 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 the figure, the position that, that makes the union itself uh, as powerful as it has become. So I, I think that wraps up the 1934 strike, and we've probably taken a lot more time than you had hoped. So uh, you can You're jump. Right. Some well, other I would say uh, at this point, 34, you know, um, after the arbitration, uh, Bridges breaks off and forms the uh, International Longshoremen and Warehouses Union. And this starts like a march inland, right? So I'd say going into the war years, I mean, how is this affected by obviously the New Deal, you know, all these employment commissions and things from Roosevelt don't want to really participate in anything militant and they're not going to encourage it, especially as the war breaks out, you know, uh, what is Bridges role and what is the ILWU's role going into World War II? And can you tell us a bit about, you know, the CIA, CIO starting up and um, what Bridges well, role was within that kind of within that, but more is the ILWU and the CIO starting and what role that plays in the union dynamics around the longshoremen's. Sure. Um, Almost immediately after the third settlement in 1934, uh, the San Francisco local began organizing off the waterfront. They began organizing warehouse workers 
and other workers who worked on the waterfront, uh, ship scalers and bargemen and so forth. And some of that was going on in the other Pacific Coast ports as well, especially with warehouse workers, uh, which is to say that they were beginning to develop a sense of it being an industrial union rather than limited to the simple trade of, of longshore workers. Um, Joe Ryan wasn't happy with this. Uh, they, um, the Pacific Coast branch uh, was seeking to expand their jurisdiction in ways that by 1936 or so was bringing them into conflict with the Teamsters. Um, the Teamsters jurisdiction was trucks and warehouses. And the longshoremen were also claiming warehouses as part of their jurisdictions, which began to put them into conflict with the Teamsters. Um, Ryan was also very reluctant to issue a charter to, uh, to longshore workers in Hawaii. And, and why he was reluctant, I, we have no idea. There's no evidence one way or another. Uh, but there were a whole series of these kinds of sticking points with Ryan. Uh, Ryan uh, seriously disliked Bridges and, and vice versa. Bridges had been really the leader in rejecting that June 16th agreement that Ryan had, had negotiated. Uh, there was bad blood between them from then on. Uh, at one point, uh, Bridges uh, gave a speech in New York in which he really castigated Ryan. Um, as this was developing, John L. Lewis was also developing the CIO, which was initially the Congress on or the Committee on Industrial Organization, uh, coming out of of the 1934. AFL uh, convention. Um, and Lewis began pushing for a more industrial model of organization so that instead, you know, of having uh, four or five different craft unions involved in automobiles or steel, there would be simply one union per industry, automobile, steel, whatever. Um, Bridges and many of his associates began moving into positions of power after the 1934 strike. Bridges was elected as local president. Then he was elected as president of the Pacific Coast District. Um, and he was wholly on board with expanding the jurisdiction of the Union uh, inland uh, to warehouses that were not on the waterfront. Because waterfront warehouses had always been sort of for the longshoremen, but any warehouses further inland were supposed to be for the Teamsters. So they started having this, having a trouble with the Teamsters in terms of some of their warehouse organizing. In 1937, by 1937, John L. Lewis had made, made a break with the AFL. He found that the AFL leadership was really unsupportive of his efforts at industrial-based uh, organizing. 
And instead of the Committee on Industrial Organization, he made a break and, and launched the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, as a separate competing national federation competing with the AFL. Uh, Bridges and many of those who had also moved into leadership on the Pacific Coast were very attracted to that model of union organization. Uh, and in 1937, they held a, a vote all up and down the coast, all, all the longshoremen in all the Pacific Coast ports uh, voted to break away from the ILA and the AFL and to get a charter with the CIO. So that's the origin of the international where uh, international longshoremen's and warehousemen's union, the ILWU uh, that exists today. Uh, so they got their charter in '37. Bridges was elected as the founding president. He was also appointed as the Western Regional Director for the CIO more generally. So that's the situation as we're approaching World War II. Um, in 1939, uh, there were a group of um, leaders from some of the other CIO unions in Southern California, auto, rubber, uh, who objected to Bridges. Uh, Bridges by that point was uh, widely seen as being very close to the Communist Party. He always denied that he was ever a member, but he was being widely accused uh, in, in the national press and by the predecessor of the House Un-American Activities Committee of being a communist. So some of those other CIO union leaders in Southern California wanted him removed as regional director in, in 39. Lewis didn't do that, but what he did was cut out Washington and Oregon from Bridges' responsibility. So from that point on, Bridges was the California regional director for the CIO. And that's the situation then going into World War II. I think I may need to mention another thing from 1939, because uh, in 1939, um, to the great surprise of many people, all uh, especially communists all over the U.S., the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany signed a non-aggression pact. And immediately after the signing of that non-aggression pact, uh, they both invaded Poland uh, and sort of divided Poland between them. And then Germany soon after swept across Western Europe, uh, occupying Denmark, the Low Countries, and France. Uh, this was a shock to many communists. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a huge split up in the socialist movement in the United States, broader in the communist movement. And, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and the Communist Party in 1940 uh, 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 broke with the with the New Deal Democrats. Well, they broke with the New Deal Democrats at the time of this this uh, Nazi Soviet pact. Uh, up until in the late 1930s, 
the communists in California, especially, had had cooperated quite closely with progressives of, of, of other parties, especially the New Deal Democrats. And they had managed to elect the governor in California in 1938. Uh, but now in 1939, uh, we have a different situation uh, with the communists began attacking Roosevelt because Roosevelt was willing to provide aid to Britain and to the other countries that were under attack by Nazi Germany. Uh, the Communist Party interpreted that uh, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact as essentially an entente between Germany and the Soviet Union. Uh, and those who were party members or close to the party followed suit. Um, Bridges, as I said, never uh, always claimed he would had never been a party member. Um, but he uh, opposed the re-election of Roosevelt in 1940. John L. Lewis did too, and no one ever accused John L. Lewis of being a communist. Uh, but Bridges opposed the election of Roosevelt on the grounds that Roosevelt was a warmonger and was likely to take the U.S. into war if he were re-elected, uh, which was the Communist Party line at, at the time. Now, this was a bad decision for for Bridges in 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 a major way, because in 1939, Francis Perkins, the Secretary of Labor, had agreed to hold a deportation hearing for Bridges. Now, from 1934 up until 1939, all kinds of people on the Pacific coast had been demanding that Bridges be deported. Employers' organizations, the American Legion, the Industrial Association, the Chambers of Commerce, and on and on, uh, accused Bridges of being a communist, and he was not yet a citizen. So they wanted to deport him. Uh, Francis Perkins, the Secretary of Labor, knew that this approach had been used in the 1920s to get rid of effective labor leaders. And she resisted the pressures that were put on her. Now, why was the Secretary of Labor getting these pressures? Because the Immigration and Naturalization Service then was a depart part of the Department of Labor. So uh, the Naturalization Service, Immigration and Naturalization Service, INS, uh, was responsible for deportation hearings, yeah, but they reported to the Secretary of Labor. Perkins resisted all those efforts. Uh, and then in 1939, an effort was made to impeach her uh, for protecting Bridges. Now, it never got very far, but Bridges told her at that point, you protect yourself. We can handle this. And he he said that knowing that they that he and his lawyers had been accumulating a lot of evidence about these people that were trying to deport him. And they knew that they had uh, engaged in perjury, for example, and that they had created a a fake party membership card for him, uh, a forged uh, party membership card. So there was a hearing in 1939. Uh, headlines all over the country about Bridges being uh, tried 
but the hearing officer found in his favor and said there's no evidence that he's a communist. This caused an even bigger uproar. And in 1940, presidential year, remember, Roosevelt coming up for re-election, Bridges opposed to, Brid to Roosevelt being re-elected. So in 1940, um, there was a bill introduced in the House of Representatives to deport Bridges by name, which is clearly unconstitutional, but right. has never bothered the House of Representatives. And they passed it and sent it on to the Senate. Roosevelt knew it was unconstitutional, but he didn't want to have to veto it in a presidential year. So he sent the attorney general to talk to some key senators to drop it. And, and attorney general Robert Jackson essentially cut a deal with the Senate. The Senate would kill this bill. And in return, the INS would move from labor to justice and Jackson would order the FBI to initiate a new investigation of Bridges that would lead to another deportation hearing. Uh, Jackson, in his memoirs, said something to the effect that the Nazi-Soviet pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, and the way that communists in the United States had jumped on board, had persuaded Roosevelt that communists were not good citizens and that he no, was no longer going prepared to, to protect them. So this uh, launched another investigation of Bridges. Uh, it led to another deportation hearing in 1941. And that hearing found against Bridges and had to be appealed through the courts through a long process, took all of World War II to get to the Supreme Court in 1945. Throughout that time, Bridges supporters tried to get Roosevelt to just stop the proceeding and say, um, you know, stop the appeals and uh, just let Bridges become a citizen. But Roosevelt clearly didn't want to do that. Roosevelt seemed to be perfectly happy to let this get tied up in court for as long as possible. Uh, and in the end, the Supreme Court did find in Bridges' favor uh, with a decision in 1945 that was on very narrow grounds. Um, so That's part of what Bridges was doing all through World War II. Yeah, it, it's it's funny to me because it's almost like, well, we tried to do a Palmer raid on one guy and it didn't work. So we tried it over and over and then we wrote a new law when the, the laws that enabled Palmer weren't enough. It's a lot to go after one man. It's And they did. Um, there, there were changes in federal law designed to get him, but even that didn't work. Uh, um, and so... Uh, at the same time, of course, the United States entered that war in 1941. Uh, and Bridges um, was interested in doing everything possible uh, to help the war effort. Uh, 
again, you know, he was close to the Communist Party. In June of 1941, Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Uh, in December of 1941, Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. The U.S. was soon at war with both Japan and Germany and Italy. Uh, and Bridges was completely on board with the war. Um, now, could you like, how did he make that transition from opposition to FDR on the basis of like an anti-war stance to supporting the war effort? Party There's a lot lady. going on with uh, CPUSA flip-flopping through the late 30s into the 40s. And it's like, could you explain that a little bit more? I, I think your term is right. <laughs> flip-flopping. <laughs> You know, the Communist Party went from being opposed to the U.S. having anything to do with the war to, uh, in June of 1941, wanting all immediate U.S. aid to the to the, all those countries fighting the so fighting Germany, obviously including the Soviet Union, and you know, Bridges followed the party line. I, I think that's it, it, the simple explanation. Uh, it's an it's. Uh, a, one example of how, though Bridges always said he never was a party member, uh, he at times followed the lead of the party on some important uh, matters. And, and that's an obvious one. I didn't think this one sticks out to me because it's such a clear reflection of the Soviet Union's policy at that time. It's such a Stalin obviously has a big problem on his hands all of a sudden, and the policy suddenly changes in Bridges' mind too. So I think it's very interesting to see that reflection despite all that, you know, denials. But yeah, I mean, this is where we end up in it. We end up with the image of Stalin and FDR as best buddies. You know, this is all kind of reversed in everybody's minds. But yeah, exactly. that is definitely a big one. Exactly. Well, where do we want to go uh, from this? Um, um, I suppose we can kind of wrap up as sort of, you know, uh, just later life, like we can start in maybe 1948 with the strikes after the war and where Bridges and the uh, ILWU end up going, how they sort of, you know, just run us through quickly you know, the later history of the ILWU and Bridges. I suppose Bridges' time there. We'll just go through that and what yep. happens in 48 and how Bridges' later life. Right. Okay. Well, uh, 1948. Um, things were getting difficult between Bridges and the leadership of the CIO. Uh, and this was in part because once again, Bridges was following the party line on a couple of issues that uh, on, on one level seemed to have nothing at all to do with unions. And, and that was the issue of the Marshall Plan, that the Communist Party had taken a strong position in opposition to the Marshall Plan to provide economic aid to the nations that had uh, been devastated by World War II. Uh, the Communist Party took that position because that was the position of Stalin uh, on the Marshall Plan. He was opposed to uh, any of the uh, countries under Soviet domination to, to take part in the, in the Marshall Plan. Um, and Bridges and his union and the other left unions in the CIO followed suit. Uh, it wasn't really a union issue. It's a, clearly a political issue, but they were following the lead of the party. And then in 1948, 
the party supported Henry Wallace's campaign for president. The CIO was supporting the re-election of Harry Truman. Bridges was only kind of lukewarm about the whole Wallace campaign, but he did follow along and his union did follow along, as did the other left unions within the CIO. Uh, this was moving toward a rupture. But in late 1948, it hadn't quite gotten there. Now, in 1948, uh, the, con the ILWU's contract with the waterfront employers was running out. And the waterfront employers kind of jumped on the anti-communist bandwagon. Their chief, negoti chief negotiators announced we won't negotiate with Harry Bridges because he's a communist and you can't negotiate with a communist. We want the union to have some different negotiators. Uh, Bridges sort of tongue in cheek at one point suggested, well, why don't we elect a rank and file negotiating committee? And he said he did so knowing that any rank and file committee would just curl the hair of those <laughs> guys on the other side of the table. But uh, that was unacceptable as well to the uh, to the Waterfront Employers Association. They wanted bridges out uh, as their price for engaging in negotiations. Uh, and this strike was dragging on and on and on. It was about three months uh, in, into the strike. The CIO was... Uh, even though they had their difficulties with Bridges, they were entirely supportive of the ILWU in those negotiations. And at some point, uh, the CIO sent two of their high-ranking officials to help uh, get the negotiations back on track. Uh, so you cannot criticize the CIO for its behavior in, the, in that 1948 strike. What really broke the deadlock was a group of stockholders from some of this, the companies, especially Matson, a big shipping company, uh, stockholders who got tired of it all and decided that they needed some new negotiators. So they, those guys that refused to negotiate with Bridges were sent off on a sea cruise, a little vacation preceding their retirement, and they were retired. And we were replaced by some negotiators from Hawaii who had been working with the ILWU in Hawaii uh, over the previous couple of years. And they were able to resolve the strike in a week or so, uh, just in time for Thanksgiving. Uh, so that was really the last cooperative relationship between the CIO and the ILWU and Bridges, because uh, the next year, the CIO moved to expel those left unions who had opposed the Marshall Plan and who had supported Wallace in the 1948 presidential election. Uh, and at one point, well, you know, the, the UE, one of those left unions, just left the CIO rather than waiting to be expelled. At one point, the Communist Party sent uh, Al Lannan to talk to, to uh, Bridges and say, the party thinks you ought to do the same thing, do what UE did. Bridges said, no, 
If they want me out, they have to throw me out. And that's what happened. The CIO expelled the ILWU and uh, the other left West Coast unions, the, the Marine Cooks and Stewards uh, and the fishermen uh, as being communist dominated. And from that point on, the ILWU operated as an independent union. They actually tried to take in the Marine Cooks and Stewards. They did take in the fishermen, uh, but they were unable to hold on to the Marine Cooks and Stewards jurisdiction. So, um, you know, that, that didn't work. Uh, so the ILWU remained an independent union from that point until the late 1980s after Bridges had long since retired. Yeah, well, I think that kind of leads me to my last question, which is um, where Bridges' story crosses with yours and what gave you the sort of motivation to write this book. And I see it's been a process. So could you just, before we go, briefly tell us, you know, how you ended up writing the book and what motivated you to write this and how you ended up finishing it when you did. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Uh, <laughs> in 1985, I had a phone call from Nikki Bridges, uh, Harry's wife. Uh, asking if I would be interested in writing a biography of Harry. And um, she explained that uh, that a friend of mine had recommended that, uh, that she contact me. She had first invited him to do it. Uh, and he said he couldn't take it on at the moment. Um, the previous... Uh, annual convention or biannual convention of the ILWU had passed a resolution telling the retiring officers, which included Bridges, uh, that they should write their memoirs. Uh, and two of the others did that by having oral histories. Uh, my phone is dinging at me. I don't know if you can hear that. You want me to repeat? Um, no, anyway, you're all right. You're right. Um, uh, so the way that Harry and Nikki were going to do this initially was that Harry was was Nikki was going to interview Harry, and then they were going to transcribe the tapes, and that would be his memoirs. But it wasn't going well, and they hired a ghostwriter to deal with it, and he interviewed Harry and wrote it up, and it wasn't acceptable to the publishers they'd found. So my uh, uh, the, the the person that, that they had previously contacted, um, excuse me, uh, the priest, person they previously contacted to, uh, convinced them that what they really needed was a thorough academic biography rather than an oral history or a memoir. And that was the, the basis upon which I agreed to take it on. And so I started in 1985. I was able to do a few interviews with Bridges and with Nikki. Um, and I started the archival research. And I ordered his FBI file. Um, and I tried to get his INS file. Uh, and all of that went on and on and on. And I spent the next 15 years uh, in various archives and it took 15 years to get his FBI file finally delivered. 
And by the time I'd finished the archival research, I drafted a few chapters, a few of the early chapters, but I then ended up with some major university responsibilities. And I had to retire in order to get my work done. <laughs> so I, I finally left teaching in 2012 and left behind other university responsibilities and uh, gave my full attention to finishing the book. Well, I mean, if you want to read a full biography of Harry's life, there's Charles uh, Laro's Harry Bridges, The Rise and Fall of Radical Labor in the U.S., which was back in the 1970s. And you have brought new um, archival uh, documentation from Russia. Uh, you have uh, new FBI documents. Um, if you want to read about Harry Bridges, you read your book has come out in uh, 2023, finally. Thanks. Well, and let me say, you know, Charles LaRue's book uh, is, is a good book, uh, but it's limited in, in the ways you've indicated. It was written uh, while Br the first edition of it was written while Bridges was still president and Bridges refused to cooperate with him. So he had a limited source of interviews available to him, and he simply didn't have access to the kinds of archival sources that I did. So, you know, yes, read my book, but you'll see that periodically I cite his book as a source for some of my information. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not a bad book. It's just a limited book in that way. It has been interesting seeing uh, biographies of different uh, left-wing uh, leaders like um, Browder's. I don't remember which relative of his wrote a book about him. Uh, E.F. Dory, who was in the IWW imprisoned in Kansas, I think his granddaughter wrote that biography. But it's been interesting seeing how these biographies of like very important figures who represent mass movements have Sometimes it's lost to history. Sometimes a biography of certain people is just not written, and that's disappointing. <laughs> right. And there's there's really excellent academic biographies of both Browder and Foster now uh, that include research in the, in the Soviet archives. You know, there was a period in the beginning in the early 1990s and extending up until, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so ago, when American researchers had very easy access to the files of the Communist Party that in Russia, uh, I did. I did. Uh, I spent about four months there, and then came back later and spent another month and a half in those archives. Uh, I didn't find a lot about bridges, but I sure found a lot about the Communist Party of the U.S., <laughs> uh, which has led to another book that's going to be coming out in about a year or so. We were thinking about asking you about that. How much can you tell us about this new research on the San Francisco Bay communists? Well, um, it it's a book that developed out of, of essentially the outtakes from my Bridges book. You know, I ended up with um, a lot of material about the Communist Party in the Bay Area that uh, I couldn't use in that book. And I interviewed a lot of people, some of whom um, I had known for years, but it turned out that they had been party members at some time. 
Um, and I thought there's a basis here for a book about the party in the Bay Area, uh, based in part upon those records, in part on FBI files, in part on interviews. And the way it has developed is that it's a book about a group of individuals, about 50 individuals who I trace from the time they joined the party, and some of them joined in the early 20s, and then trace onward uh, to see what was, what was life like for them as party members. And I end the book in 1958, because by then, a significant majority of the people I'm following had left the party. You know, the party was falling apart from 56 through 58. And that was true of, of the large majority of those I was following. Some some stayed in, though. Some stayed in to the day they died. And I do follow some of them on, onward as well. So it's a book about Communist Party members. <laughs> it's not a comprehensive view of the Communist Party, but it's about these individuals and what life was like for them as party members. I'm excited to read that one. I'm I'm very interested in the periods of the Red Scare and how this sort of breaks up the parties and how the parties managed to break up themselves to some extent in a lot of places, you know, a lot they of did. internal struggles. And yeah, it, I, I definitely look forward to that one. And hopefully we can have you back once it's out. Um, but sure. thank you for coming on. I, we, we really enjoyed this. This is a great conversation. Thank yeah. you for staying for Thanks so for long. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were really, I was really excited reading the book. So yeah. Yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I hope other people are too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you yeah. again. And yeah, we'll talk to you when the next book comes out for sure. Okay. All right. All right. Wow. We are back with uh, the very end of the left is that here for you. That was a decent length interview. You know, I don't think the only person who beats that is Aiden, probably. <laughs> and <laughs> an hour and a half of that is about Israel. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. This one's just covering Harry Bridges. No big deal. Just his entire life and yeah, I know story here. here. Yeah. There's more real history here than there was in that one. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, that no, it was cool. I think it's. I don't know. I didn't like, I'm not really familiar, super familiar with the story. Cause like, it's not my industrial area of organization. You know, like I live in Michigan, like the UAW is much more familiar to me and that history is a lot more accessible to me, but like, Oh it's yeah. Interesting to hear like the, because again, I think I said to you before we even started recording, like the long-term have always been notoriously a radical union as far as I've known. It's like Occupy and like previous to that, like the anti-war stuff, like they've always been like that, especially in Oakland and the Bay area. So it was cool to like hear some of the origins of it and how like that actually like it spun out, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I, there's a question, too, of like the CIO and like industrial or trade union. And like, that's a, it's an interesting time in history when this is trying to be resolved. And like to see the CIO trying to take like the IWW line and live with that in the modern market without like subsuming to it, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I like the fucking switching on party lines. I'll give, I'll give him that. Pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, and back hate, then it could make more sense oscillating between Republicans and Democrats, you know? Oh, I mean, like, 
No, I meant that, like the style Haley oh, Bridges and style. Yeah. yeah, just like yeah. I hate war. Like actually, I want war. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing fishy here, bro. But like, I don't know. What do you think? What do you like? Well, you read like more of the book than me for sure. Oh, I mean, so like I've read it and then I've reread most of it. Yeah. So I've read like. There's so much going on. And it's like, we were talking about like, okay, what was the MWIU again? And this and that is like, oh yeah, yeah that was the communist backed Marine union that didn't really get anywhere, but they keep they're yeah, in we, the story the whole time. We didn't <laughs> and, have to know their names. Yeah. But it's just, <laughs> it seems like it's because of Bridges positions that they're there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much about like, so like, yeah, I, I got to figure out how to like plan for these interviews. Like with Jonathan Melrod, it was a lot easier. Yeah, I just, I like, I don't know. I wanted, I want to dive into like, um, Bridges like being like, well, no, we hate the Marshall Plan. Like, this seems like yeah. it is like bad for the doc, like bad for the docs. If I'm like remembering how the Marshall Plan worked correctly, like that was not just like money; it was raw materials and stuff. <laughs> this is bad for your job. Like, this is no. kind of workplace related. It seems like. Yeah, I mean that whole thing about like, I didn't know how to ask him about the changing party line between third periodism when is how does the united front and popular front working with this and also i mean like we didn't even really talk about containerization in the 1950s that's directed to the i i ilwu first and also how the vietnam war and like there's a wartime demand that's kind of like pushing some labor leaders to be like maybe this is a good thing for us maybe it's a bad thing and yeah then it's fraud lot, yeah especially after world war ii and like all these industrial workers are just you know they are unionized under the umbrella of what would be defense manufacturing aerospace workers you know manufacturing like textile you know mm-hmm. these all these workers are under different unions but they are union and that's they probably still are because they're federal contractors but assholes. oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah they still get the union um no I wanted, I'd like to dive into more like the Red Scare stuff, man, because I find that really in, in, interesting. Because, like, like I said, they invented like Palmer raids for this one guy. Like, we're trying to write new, like, <laughs> new espionage and alien acts for like this asshole. You know, like, we don't like this guy that yeah. much. So we like, yeah, a bill in Congress. It's just like, no, I would just say, like, with Harry Bridges, he's so materially important because he has real relationships with these uh, structurally powerful laborers who can shut down Pacific trade, period. And yeah. all the unions have to work with them. On the other hand, he's also symbolically important because he's being made as this martyr figure by the FBI and the Employers Association. And uh, where was I even going with this thought? Yeah, there's a lot of good with like this. From what I read, it was like, I sort of like the combination where it's the, the voice is still spoken. Like you said, the general history while also being about Harry Bridges. So it's like, it mm-hmm. doesn't lose the affect of this is, you know, a popular struggle. Like it doesn't lose that. No. And like he made sure in the interviewer to keep, you know, making sure that it's inserted there. Like this is all, you know, he keeps getting elected these positions. Like these are popular things and this is popular among the union. And like, you know, these are things that and even desegregation and stuff like that earlier on, it's, it's wild to see that stuff. And it's always an interesting when you find that stuff like proceeding when it actually is socially acceptable. You know, it's like when mm-hmm. you find out like the Jacobins abolished slavery because they're like real passionate about it for whatever reason, you know? Yeah. And you find out that somebody's like, oh, this took us till 1860, you know? I'm like, oh, okay. And like <laughs> you find out somebody's like really ahead, you know, like women in the workplace, like how crazy, like 
but you know, the longshore workers were like, these are the first people to start like unionizing women and stuff like that. Cause they go into the factory, you know, the inner warehouses and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see. Cause like, yeah. And we got to find somebody about the teamsters. Cause I need to know more. Oh yeah. I was <laughs> yeah. researching uh, horses and teamsters recently. Cause I'm taking this horse history <laughs> seminar thing. Yeah. Yeah. Weirdly, a lot of the stuff about Teamsters don't say enough about the horses they were riding up through the 1920s and 30s in some cases. So it's like weird. Yeah, they talk. I mean, like the Teamster, don't get me on a Teamster rabbit hole, but it's two horse heads in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen, oh, yeah, I've seen it. They drive trucks now, and there's so much. Yeah, about we got 15 minutes. Yeah, I'm about 15 minutes from the last sighting of Jimmy Hoffa. <laughs> doesn't take me long to get there. <laughs> It's like 10, 15 minutes to go see where, you know, it's an Andiamo like chain Italian restaurant now. But yeah, yeah. It was the last place he was seen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd love to get into more Red Scare stuff. Um, yeah. Oppenheimer came out. A lot of that is just about the Red Scare. Yeah. We should and, watch it. We'll definitely, I'm going to, I got to see Oppenheimer. We'll have to look, watch that and get yeah. back on that one. And like, yeah. I think people should just read this Harry Bridges book and watch The Irishman uh, and watch The Irishman <laughs> and read chapter eight. Uh, Harry Bridges and the Communist Party in the 1930s, Evidence from the Russian Archives. Because there's so much funny stuff about Earl Browder and his ex-brother-in-law, who is his man on the ground in San Francisco. That chapter eight is so fun. It's always cool to look at the old like files from both like competing intelligence agencies, like internally here, internally there, externally here, externally. Like the KGB is obviously all one in like the Soviet Union, but like, yeah, the CIA is fucking with them and like they're constantly like. I mean, this is like the way it drives me insane that like, you know, give me more papers on Oswald, damn it. <laughs> I know you have <laughs> yeah. them. I know you guys yeah. have them. And what the hell is he doing? Either that or they don't have them and the FBI has them all because that's who did it, you know, like the CIA. Maybe they don't have anything. They're just like, this guy is annoying. Who knows? Who's in that what? series about Stephen King's fucking 1963 or whatever? Oh, there's James Franco before he got canceled. Oh, dang. Pre-cancellation James Franco. You're talking about the TV adaptation of that Stephen King novel? Yeah, where about he goes back to stop Kennedy from being assassinated and makes oh, nuclear bomb man. fallout camps and shit. Yeah, that was cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just a date, or it might just be 1963. Yeah, that was a good one. You gotta watch more movies and stuff again, bro. For sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but let's check out, I don't know, um, make a date to set. I Watch Oppenheimer, and we'll see sure. why you shouldn't let, you know, scientists come here, ever. I won't. I won't get my takes just yet on it. I've I've seen it twice just because like just shut down the importation of scientists. It's <laughs> enough. Well, they kind of did it a little bit with uh, Jewish scientists under FDR to an extent, well, look, but uh, they were busy. And then they were like, "Oh wait, maybe we do need these people." <laughs> yeah, funny. They were all physicists and shit. Oh, whoops. Sorry, Albert. Come on over. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. And like, yeah. and then of course after the war, like, oh, here's your new coworker, Hans. Like. Oh, great. <laughs> I, I met your family, buddy. Like, oh, dude, this uh, rocks. Yeah. Uh, and then what happens after the Soviet Union? Like, you guys are unemployed. Sorry. Like, we'll give you a make work program to like touch anthrax in like an igloo cooler. Like, have fun. You couldn't use any of these people. <laughs> I guess we were done by the point, like, oh, well, the, the Cold War's over. Like, the ideological war's over. I think that's what we should go into exploring more, though, is just the Cold War insanity at the time. Historical shit, you know, more organizing stuff too. But yeah, I think we're going to stick closer towards like labor and stuff like that. So we'll be back with more of that. Wherever we got, no, we got more Christianity stuff next. So stay tuned.